Since its formation in 2003, the Anti-Corruption Commission has established itself as one of Indonesia's most trusted and popular institutions, owing to its prosecution of a string of powerful figures for graft. Indicative of the Commission's strong public support, in 2014 Joko Widodo initially courted KPK chairperson Abraham Samad as his vice-presidential candidate, a choice that would have bolstered his credentials as a reformist political outsider. Once he was elected, Jokowi also asked the KPK to vet potential members of his cabinet in 2014, resulting in the exclusion of several potential ministers with checkered backgrounds. But much has changed over the course of Jokowi's five years in office. No invitation was extended to the KPK this year to vet Jokowi's second-term cabinet, which of course sensationally turned out to include his rival for the presidency, Prabowo Subianto. And just prior to Jokowi's inauguration for a second term, the President agreed to amendments to the KPK's founding statute that significantly curtail the Commission's authority and independence. To discuss these developments, I'm joined today by one of the KPK's five Commissioners, Dr Laude Mohamed Sharif, who completes his term in 2019. Pat Laude, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and a pleasure to have you on Talking Indonesia. Now, could I start by asking you, um, how strong an influence is the KPK able to have on the levels of corruption in Indonesia? And, and what are the main weapons the Commission has in its fight against graft? Yeah, I think uh, in the past we are considered as one of the most successful anti-corruption agencies, in, not only in Indonesia, but I think even in the regions or even maybe in the world, because it is not us actually saying it, but for example, several others, uh, international organizations like uh, UNODC and others, and Transparency International, because we are, I think, notorious of look after the big fish. And we've been sending the parliamentarian, even the speaker of the parliament, so a lot of governors and a lot of ministers, even high-ranking police officials, even the chief justice of Constitutional Court of Indonesia and several other justices and and many mayors, actually more than 200 mayors, for example, all over Indonesia. So I think we are quite strong and quite influential in Indonesia, uh, both for prevention and prosecution of of corruption cases. Now, I mean, you mentioned the hundreds of mayors, various governors, other influential officials that the KPK has imprisoned, often with wiretaps being an important part of the case. In a country of 270 million people, does that have a sufficient impact to decrease the levels of, of corruption that we see in government? Yeah, it is sometimes it's quite difficult to answer because, for example, the uh, level of corruption is still actually high. But I think the people, since the establishment of the KPK, are... Uh, People in the government, the executive, uh, legislative, and the judiciary actually to be more aware that actually if they're doing wrong, that there is a possibility the KPK 
can do, do investigation and prosecuting them. So I think in that sense, uh, we are quite influential. I mean, you've been a commissioner since 2015. What would you see as some of the KPK's really landmark achievements over the course of those four to five years? One of them, actually, we can actually finish one of the biggest cases uh, in Indonesia involving uh, electronic ID card, involving several high-ranking officials, including the Speaker of Parliament, uh, Setia Novanto. Uh, he is actually serving his term in jail for 15 years. And he was a, he was chairperson of one of the largest political parties, Golkar, at yes. the time. Yes, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and also, I think, because of that, the KPK almost got killed too, you know, mm-hmm. because they are launching an inquiry and they check almost everything to be in the KPK. Another one, case-wise, the BLBI case. We start actually investigation and we actually prosecuting one of the high-ranking officials at that time. Of course, it's thrown out by the Supreme Court, but we're still trying to challenge the final decision of the Supreme Court. Also in the past, the KPK are always just focusing on individuals. They never prosecute companies. When I get in, uh, because I used to teach the Indonesian National Police, the Attorney General Office, including the KPK, but corporate criminal liability. So I asked my prosecutors, and why you guys actually never prosecute companies? So now actually we have about 10 companies being prosecuted by the KPK. We established anti-corruption learning centers and we also established nine virtual regional offices mm. of the KPK. And lastly, I would say that we are uh, focusing on natural resources related corruptions. Now, I mean, you've mentioned those big fish cases like that one of Setia Navanto, the expansion into resource extraction corruption. Are there nevertheless cases that are essentially off-limits for the KPK, areas of governance in Indonesia where you know there's corruption but you can't investigate for one reason or another? Yeah, there are, I think, for example, because if you look at uh, the number of investigators and prosecutors that I have, I think, so people who are actually working on that, maybe less, but like 400 people, and we have to look after from Sumatra up to Papua. And, of course, some people, they know how to do it, and it is difficult to find an evidence, and some of them, actually, they do all transactions outside Indonesia, involving British Virgin Islands, for example, Panama and stuff, so, and Mauritius, and many others. So sometimes, even though we knew that this is actually very corrupt, it is quite difficult to investigate and to prosecute because we don't have enough evidence. Unless we have some kind of like international cooperation, for example, in the case of electronic ID card involving Setian Vanto, it is most of the evidence it is actually we got it from the FBI from US. I have to travel to four countries mm. uh, to collect an evidence like Mauritius, India, Singapore, and US. Okay, so some people are sophisticated enough to hide their corruption so that there isn't evidence of it. I mean, what about over the course of its history, the KPK has had repeated confrontations with the Indonesian police, typically after investigating a high-ranking police officer. The most recent of these was when the KPK made Jokowi's nomination as National Police Chief Budi Gunawan 
a suspect just after Jokowi had announced him as police chief, ultimately leading to his appointment to be aborted. I mean, since that case, has that sent a message to the KPK that you simply can't investigate senior Indonesian police officers? Yeah, there are some people actually feeling that way, but actually it is we investigate based on the evidence. Uh, if we have a credible evidence that we can actually go uh, to investigate, uh, we do not differentiate people. We do not actually looking for confrontation with the police, but because we do have some police officers actually working with us, almost half of my investigators are police officers, including director of investigations, uh, actually this active police. So we have no specific, how would I say, uh, we are not targeting the police, but if there is uh, enough evidences uh, involving whoever, I mean, whether the police or the prosecutors or the governors, uh, we can just, if we have enough evidence that we go and okay. prosecute them. Sure, sure. Because, I mean, another criticism we've seen of the KPK over the past four to five years, for instance, the ANU political scientist Tom Power wrote in late 2018 that there'd been no high-profile PDIP politicians, PDIP being the main political backer of Jokowi, prosecuted during his term, and that several PDIP politicians who'd initially been named in connection with the Setia Novanto case ultimately were not named in the indictment. Is that an accurate characterization? And I mean, if so, what sort of pressures would work against prosecutions of people from PDIP? Oh, actually, it is kind of wrong because we have several, we are prosecuting several PDIP members, whether it's Kabupaten level, even in provincial level, even in central parliamentarians. In fact, the PDIP actually consider us actually targeting them. I mean, all the ruling coalition like the Golkars, PDIP, and PPP, uh, for example, even because the president of the PPP also caught red-handed, actually taking bribe. So they think actually the, the, the KP actually playing politics to destroy the current governments. But if you look at the history of the KPK, usually the KPK victims is actually the ruling parties at that particular time. If you look at SBY, there's most of the victim of the KPK actually from Partai Democrat, Democratic mm. Party. It is mm. actually led by mm. uh, by the president. So even the presidents of Democratic Party are actually indicted, you know. And so I think he, he has to look at the number, the mm. number. So not many. But of course, it that's what they say. We are. They think that we are targeting the ruling coalitions. But if you look at also, we also prosecute, for example, the deputy chair of the parliament from PAN, for example, mm-hmm. and one or two from PKS, I think. But I think if you look at the number, it is most of them are from the ruling coalitions. You mentioned before half of the KPK's investigators come from the police. And of course, there were allegations raised that some of those police investigators were attempting to destroy evidence or otherwise prevent cases going forward. We've also seen the police during the Jokowi government propose their own anti-corruption body, which I think from memory was proposed to have a greater budget than the, than the KPK, although it didn't ultimately go ahead. How are 
relations with the police? And does that rivalry where both institutions are tackling corruption cases affect relations between the two institutions and the, and the functioning of the KPK? Yes, I think it's one of the, I think, main weaknesses of institutional arrangement of anti-corruption agencies in Indonesia compared to other countries, for example. In Hong Kong, for example, it is ICAC, the one and only institution that actually investigate and prosecute corruptions. If you see Singapore, yeah, it is uh, CPIB. Uh, so the general police, they don't have a power to investigate corruptions. Uh, Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commissions, or Siabok in Sri Lanka, and many others. For example, even in US, it is the FBI that has the power to investigate corruptions, not general police. In close to Australia, like uh, New Zealand, serious fraud office that actually have the power. It is not within the police. So in Indonesia, I don't know what really happened during the discussions of the KPK law. They still maintain the power of the police and authority general to investigate corruption case. So in sometimes they created unnecessary environment. Yeah, there was a proposal from the Indonesian National Police to establish called Data Semen Husus Anti-Corruption, or just like Densus uh, for terrorism or from narcotic. So a special anti-corruption yeah. detachment. Yeah, 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 special anti-corruption detachment. But at that particular time, uh, we discussed it openly. Uh, the president invited the Attorney General Office, the KPK, and several relevant ministries to discuss it, and we decided that uh, no, because uh, without the special detachment, they can actually still have the power to investigate if they want. Mm. So, yeah, we thanks Jokowi at that time, actually. He's not actually establishing that. new. If they establish another one and the general police still, for example, can investigate, it will create it's like four institutions that have the power to investigate corruption. Um, how would you characterize the support that the KPK has received from Jokowi over, over the course of his presidency? Uh, it is a very difficult question for me to answer, but I think the support of the SBY, it is more tangible mm. than, 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 than Jokowi. Mm. Okay. Because, I mean... <laughs> Because it seemed like initially Jokowi was very supportive of the KPK. As I said, he approached Abraham Samad to be a potential vice presidential running mate. He involved the KPK in vetting his first cabinet. What changed over and, and why, do you think? We don't really know We because we still think that actually uh, the current president, President Jokowi, it's kind of because it was civil society people who actually pushed him to become the governor of Jakarta, and later he became the president of the Republic of Indonesia. CSO people actually rallying behind him, including myself, before I became a commissioner. So because mm-hmm. we believe in his promise that he is going to strengthen the capital, I think so. in 2014 he even actually said... Uh, is going to improve the the investigators and prosecutors of KPK up to 1,000 or 2,000 people. He actually tried to strengthen us and give more budget to us. But lately, it is difficult to understand, and I don't really know what happened within his coalitions, and especially, I think, it's in the last, like, three months. 
In recent reported, you, you mentioned it's been the last three months you feel that Jokowi's stance to the KPK has perhaps changed. Um, we've seen, for instance, Tempo magazine reporting that in various meetings, Jokowi has said the KPK's wiretapping is out of control, that its investigations are slowing down the decision-making of local governments, that it should focus more on prevention rather than investigations. Are, are these matters that Jokowi has raised directly with the KPK? Yeah. In several meetings, for example, he said that this slowed down the process of the government spending. And I say we just tell him actually what we actually ask them. It is just based on the presidential regulations. Uh, we, every procurement have to go through normal process. Uh, they don't need to be afraid of, I mean, if they're just doing it just based on the law. So, but once they actually trying to enrich themselves, then we cannot just close our eyes if we actually got an information. So sometimes it's also quite difficult to understand it because it is supposed to be very simple. Mm. And there've been, I think, rumors or information actually he got. For example, I've heard that actually the they are accusing that the KPK were tapping the president and things like that, which is. I can guarantee 100% it's not true. I think the idea was it was not the president directly, perhaps, but someone within the presidential palace? No, it is not. I mean, it depends on, for example, if you... I think it's two office ministers actually now actually in jail already. If we receive a complaint of corruption activities that we have to follow it up, you know. Mm. We cannot just differentiate it yeah, because they are ministers and we have just tried to close our eyes. Uh, we cannot because by law we are obliged to do it. But we never actually misuse our power or abusing our power, just white-tapping everybody. It, it, it's never. And they think that actually all corruption actually is because of white-tapping, which is actually not true. Mm. Most of corruption cases actually got retained simply because of the informant. The informant actually know the transaction will, will happen, like for example, tomorrow. So that's the most important one. It is not the wiretapping. Mm, mm, mm. We'll come back to that issue of wiretapping in a second because obviously there's been changes to that in the amendment to the KPK yeah. law. But I mean, before we get to that, I mean, the other feature of the KPK's work. And, uh, and support from the president that I should bring up is, of course, over the last few years, we've seen several physical attacks on, on the KPK. Um, there was the acid attack on one of KPK's investigators novel, Baswedan, near his home that resulted in him being blinded in one eye. I believe your residence was attacked with Molotov cocktails as well. Has President Jokowi involved himself directly in, in, in the investigations uh, of those attacks, demanding an outcome? from those investigations? Yeah, for example, in the case of Novel, it is almost three years now. He's actually blind. And for some, my house, it is actually thrown, actually attacked with Molotov cocktails. Fortunately, actually, the first cocktail that actually throw, it is landed, just not explode. Okay. It wasn't explode. But the second one, it is the greatest big explosion, but mm-hmm. it is hit the wall. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's no timber surrounded, you know, and so it was, we were lucky. Yeah, very lucky. Uh, 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 yeah, very lucky. And another one, actually, they planted kind of like a fake bomb to Pa Agus Raharjo's house. 
We've been waiting for the result of the investigation, it is because I still remember it was like the 6th of January. Until now, we haven't received any <laughs> a result of the investigations. And the Indonesian National Police even actually say they asked the Australian Federal Police for help to identify the CC, several CCTV around my house, and including for Novel Baswedan. It is mm. three years. And I think if you are studying terrorism in Indonesia, I think they are more complicated. Tradition police are usually are very, very good in finding someone. Yeah, because I used to teach in Jakarta, in Jesse, like in Semarang too, before I became a commissioner of the KPK. And I think yeah, a lot of people actually learn from Indonesia how to investigate terrorist-related crimes. Uh, but for not sophisticated kind of crime, uh, we haven't received the president always said he already asked the Indonesian National Police to investigate, but mm. yeah, we are still waiting. Right. Now, moving along to this question of the changes that we've seen in the past few months, I, I mentioned at the outset this issue of the amendment to the KPK law, but even before that, we've seen the selection process for new commissioners who will commence their terms after you finish up in December 2019. And that selection process starts with a selection committee appointed by the president, but the commissioners are then ultimately chosen by the parliament. And we've seen a lot of public criticism of the choice of new KPK chairperson because uh, some of the current KPK commissioners, I believe, have accused him of a serious ethics violation at a time when he was an investigator for the KPK. Um, does Indonesia have the selection process right for the KPK commissioners when you're ending up with one of the key institutions that it investigates and prosecutes, the parliament, making the choice on, on who is going to sit on the KPK leadership. That's what the law said. So we have to follow what the law said. It's that the president established an independent committee, selection committee, and, and he actually have to stand people and, of course, send it to the parliament for the last five, including myself, for example. But I think during the selection process of my terms, it's not many outcried, just like the current one. The Indonesian people think, actually, the member of the selection committee it is not really independent people. Yeah, but... Yeah, I, I leave it to the government. Were you surprised to see Firli Bahuri, this former investigator who was accused of meeting with a witness to a corruption case the KPK was investigating? Were you surprised to see him appointed as KPK chief? Yeah, if you look at the whole process, it is actually, I'm not surprising, but I don't want to comment on that. I mean, you mentioned there has been this outcry around the selection of the commissioners. What would you say to people who are concerned about what direction the, the new commissioners might take the KPK in? Yeah, I just hope that actually they continue the integrity of the office. I can assure uh, the Indonesian people that actually the working environment within the KPK is actually quite good. Mm. And the check and balances actually within the office are quite robust. So I hope they will act as a true commissioner of the KPK. Sure, sure. Now, I mean, not long after that selection process, we also saw uh, in the space of just 14 days, I believe, uh, uh, an amendment to the KPK's 
founding statute uh, rushed through the parliament uh, in, in the last days of that parliament's term before it was replaced uh, by the new parliament elected back in April. Now, that st- that amendment changes some of the distinct features of the KPK as an institution. Were you surprised that this amendment was brought forward and was able to be passed so quickly, or, or did you have an inkling already that something of this sort was going to happen? No, at all. We are very, very surprised because we never actually had any formal letter or even an informal communication with the government, the parliament, because in the past, I still remember, I think it was in February 2016, the legislative body of the parliament actually invited the KPK to discuss about the possibility of amending the KPK law I represented the KPK and I went to the parliament. I said, uh, based on our assessments, there is no need to amend the KPK law because the KPK law has been actually used as good practices, as a standard, not only by Indonesian, but many other countries. But what we need actually to amend is to revise. It is actually the, the law on corruption because we still have several gaps compared to United Nations Convention Against Corruption. For example, we haven't criminalized bribe within private sectors, illicit enrichments, trading in influence, or bribing for foreign officials. It's not yet criminalized. So mm. I think so we have to focus on that one first before you're talking about amending the KPK law. Mm. And there was agree, an agreement between us, and it was like, Silent and suddenly, just like less than a month, there was a new rumors that the Chinese KPK law will be revised, based on the initiative of the parliaments, mm. and sent it to the government, to the president, and the. We were hoping at that time because we never received any letter at all for consultation as one of the main stakeholders of the law. We are not invited by the team of the parliament and by the team of the government. So we were hoping actually the president will not consent for the discussion of the revision of the law. But to our surprise, he said yes. Mm. And he came up with a press conference and said that he are going to establish an oversight body within the KPK and try to change the status of KPK staff from independence, state independence officers to become a part of a regular civil servants. And that. And But again, to our surprise, when we ask the draft, I myself actually went to the office of the Ministry of Justice and Human Rights and Pa Agus Rahadjo and one of my deputies, and my legal bureau staff. Uh, we went to the office of the ministers and asked for the draft. And he didn't give us a draft. And he said, no, no, we will invite you guys to the parliament. Also, we wait. Mm. But actually, there was no invitations. And so we don't really know. So even actually my staff asking us what really happened within the governments and the parliaments, we couldn't answer because, mm. yeah, Basically, they put us in the dark. So the whole process, it is only conducted by the parliaments and the government. 
allowing for the fact that the KPK was kept in the dark, as you say. On previous occasions where the DPR, the, the parliament has initiated an amendment, the, the president has withheld his consent for those discussions, which in Indonesia prevents a new law from being enacted. Why do you think Jokowi agreed on this occasion to allow the law to be discussed? I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly what actually uh, the main reasons uh, of the president. And I think that's why I think that they did it actually in secretive way. Mm. So the people don't know until actually the if the people actually knew the detail of which article that will be actually changed, what the new formula of the law. I think people will actually react. But this time, uh, people are reacting after they <laughs> decided, you know, because, yeah. yeah, even us, because we do not want to comment on something based on the rumors of the information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, because it can be, you know, uh, it's maybe inaccurate. Uh, so we do not mm-hmm. want to comment of based on like rumors of, from the journalist. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point because I mean, one of the ways that the government responded to criticism at the time was to accuse critics of, of saying, you don't understand, you haven't read the read the law. Yeah. But, uh, but it was very difficult to, as you say, ob- obtain a copy of the law. But obviously, uh, by now, you, you, of course, would would have seen the text of this new law that has been passed. Could you talk us through what you'd anticipate the impacts are going to be on the on the KPK's work? Yeah, for your information, we just received the law one week ago. Okay. It was the 17th of October, mm. and we're actually waiting because it has to take uh, effect. The law it has been whether the president will sign it or not, uh, it will take effect on that 17th of, of October. That's one month after it was yeah, one, yeah. Yeah, passed by the parliament. But passed, yeah, passed by the parliament. And so we are actually waiting again until the second two days after that we got the, mm-hmm. the law. And we check it through. And we found it, it is quite, it is unimaginable. For example, we are not opposing to install, for example, the oversight body within the KPK or outside the KPK. It is okay for just to check and balances of the KPK because we have a big power. Mm. Uh, because the police, they have uh, national police commissions within the Kajaksan or the prosecutors. They have national prosecutors commissions. And we have a judicial commission to oversee judges. It is okay for us to be checked. But when I read the, uh, the new law, there are several functions and tasks of this oversight body actually to approve wiretapping, to approve the sales of the asset, to approve several other things. It is not an oversight body. It is kind of like a part of the executive of the office. Mm. So it is just like the every decision that has to be made by the commissioner, they have to ask for permission mm. from the oversight body. So mm. now who is going to check this oversight body? And the oversight body will be selected by the president himself. Mm. So, and, and again, created, I think it will create difficulties within, inside the office. The second thing, as you just mentioned, in the past, just like myself, all commissioners are investigators and prosecutors because mm. we investigate our case. And we, so I have the power to sign for a letter, for example, for white tapping, for confiscation of assets, for the indictment because 
within the law it is actually clear because we are uh, but the current law it's not the current law the, there is no one article saying that actually the commissioner actually the investigators or the or the prosecutors so now we are worried who is become the the highest authority within the office mm. it is just like the oversight body that actually has authority but they are just an oversight mm. they are not law enforcement per mm. se mm. so we actually also quite worry it can be challenged in the court in what basis you actually authorize the wiretapping for example mm. if you are not you are investigators for example mm. and several other things the status of the employee of the KPK because in the past we are independents uh, but now it has become a civil servants general civil servants mm. and this will be transferred in two years periods mm. so we don't really know yet you know what really happened but I think it will affect a lot the investigation and prosecution of function of the KPK in the future and I mean if you go back to the oversight body and now permission is required from that oversight body to wiretap. Is the problem there one of creating the opportunity for intervention, uh, for instance, from the president, or is it one of the potential that the information could leak to the target? What What, what is the issue that that oversight on, on wiretapping creates? Ah, those two. Mm. Yeah, for example, in the past, Actually, the wiretapping within the KPK, it is, it's already established very strict procedures. Mm. Yeah, from the investigation, need for approval from the deputy, and finally the deputy asks as a commissioner, not only one person, but the whole five commissioners, mm. yeah, to be able to wiretap someone. But now it is not enough. You have to ask one more layers, mm. which is actually the oversight body. And he's not oversight. He's actually trying to approve yes or no, mm-hmm. uh, go or no go of, of, of wiretapping. And these people are, again, a representative of the president, so I don't think that it is kind of like... Yeah, there is the potential for compromising the independence of the office. And... Obviously, the the passage of the amendment to the KPK law, um, it came at the same time as the government was talking about passing a a controversial set of amendments to the criminal code. It spurred large protests in more than 20 provinces across Indonesia. Uh, People said the largest mobilization of university students, in fact, since the fall of Suharto. And uh, in the the wake of those protests, uh, you had a civil society delegation going to see President Jokowi, demanding that emergency legislation, a so-called purple, be passed to to alter the KPK law. That talk seems to have gone quiet, uh, although it was something that Jokowi said he would consider. Do you think there's any prospect that emergency legislation of purple will be issued by the president to rescind the amendments to the KPK law? I don't know yet, but if you look at, for example, there's been a victim for five students actually die out of protests uh, and several injuries, and of course, it is quite violence. Uh, and we thought that actually the president at that particular time he can actually declare purple or emergency law in lieu of the legislations. And the civil society groups, even the elders of the country actually 
went to the palace and met him, and he said, we'll consider. I think the possibility of him to issue uh, the purple, it is very slim. And why, why is that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know exactly because I don't really think that uh, anti-corruption it is in his number one priority. Mm-hmm. I think for his second terms, if you look at his speech during the Independence Day and in the inauguration speech, there was no word of anti-corruption or democratization of human rights. For example. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if the chances for a purple are very slim, is there any other prospect of these amendments to the KPK law being undone? Or is this now likely to be the new legislative landscape for the KPK for, for many years to come? Yeah, we do hope actually we the parliaments and the government to rethink again. And there is a discussion of uh, legislative review within the parliaments and the presidents to discuss it again because they see a lot. Yeah, if you make a law in a hurry, and very secretive. Once you read it, it says a lot of loopholes, and actually, even some of them, it doesn't make sense at all. Mm. Uh, so they now they see it. There is a discussion between the parliaments and the presidents to review the law. But considering that the Ministry of Justice still the same one, uh, yeah, the possibility also very very slim. Yeah, no, it would seem to be a pretty remarkable yeah, change of position. Yeah, change of positions, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what are the implications then for the fight against corruption in Indonesia? Yeah, I think the implication may be you won't see a lot of, like, red-handed arrest anymore. I think uh, maybe the prosecution of, like, a big company may be less... Yeah, I don't know yet, but I'm just mm. trying uh, to imagine, imagine what might happen. Yeah, yeah what might happen. I also really hope, actually, the corruption perception in the Indonesia, actually, the score will be increased. But I think there is a possibility uh, to just stumble or going down mm. for next year, I think. So. I mean, as I said, uh, obviously, the KPK attracted a lot of public support within Indonesia when these amendments were tabled and ultimately passed. I'm sure a lot of those people who did protest will be concerned to to hear you saying this. This will make the KPK's work much more difficult. Um, do you have any advice or recommendation to those who have been protesting in support of the KPK as what they sh- as to what they should be doing uh, going forward in in response to these changes? Yeah, I think they we still need to voice our concern through formal and informal channel within the parliaments and. Uh, and the Indonesian government uh, can send a petitions or open letters to the presidents and uh, to the parliaments. Now, Pak Laude, it's a very concerning picture you paint, and there's a lot more that I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with Talking Indonesia today. It's been great. Uh, thank you very much, and I still really hope that uh, the president will use his wisdoms and experience at least uh, to change uh, the current newly revised SKPK law based on the proposals and the suggestions on many Indonesians because he promised during his campaign day that he is going to strengthen the KPK. 
Thank you very much. That was Dr. Laude Muhammad Sharif, a commissioner of Indonesia's Corruption Eradication Commission, the KPK. Talking Indonesia returns on 14 November with my co-host Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until then, you can find the entire archive for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.